For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined all the way from LA by Charlotte Laws. Charlotte, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to speak to you. So I, I became aware of, of yourself and your work very recently after watching a documentary on Netflix, and I'm, I'm sure we'll go into that in more detail, but there's so much more to Charlotte Laws than just that documentary on Netflix. So how, how would you describe yourself? Who are you? For those that are listening to this in Scotland and all across the world, who, who is Charlotte Laws? Well, I would probably say I'm multi-occupational. I would say that my um, philosophy is essentially that persistence is the key to success and what I call other centrism or helping others, both humans and animals, is the key to happiness. So I try to spend a lot of my life helping causes and putting my heart into trying to make the world better, as corny as that sounds. <laughs> I think that's important though. And, and you know, the the whole ethos of where this documentary came from and your background shows that you do put others before yourself and often at times your family as well. Charlotte, I do want to mention one thing though that is certainly not always a sensible thing to do. Uh, I, I read here that you are a, a party crasher. You're a well-known party crasher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. That is my background. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that from, from your early days. Yeah, I um, well, I kind of started doing it when I was very young, and I grew up in an adoptive family, and it was a very tragic situation. My father was verbally abusive. My mom committed suicide. My brother was killed in a car accident, and I was kind of like the black sheep of the family and of the community. And so I kind of, in order to establish a family, I started reaching out to entertainment people. And to get to entertainment people, you kind of have to crash security a lot of times. And, and the reason why I chose it entertainment is because they seem very open-minded. I saw them on TV and they weren't prejudiced. I grew up in a very racist family in a racist upper-class Atlanta snobby community. And so I just was very drawn to these open-minded people who wore flashy clothes, which I loved. And, you know, and so I just kind of started doing it for fun when I was younger. But as I got older, I realized there were really good purposes that you could use for crashing. You can use it to lobby for legislation. You can get wealthy people and well-known people signed onto causes. You can get celebrity interviews. You can get into a, for example, into a, an award show and you can go from person to person and interview 20 celebrities in one place or like a book you're writing or an article, which is a heck of a lot easier than trying to set it up individually with every publicist. So I just realized that there are a lot of benefits and that, you know, some of these fundraisers, Joe Biden had a fundraiser that was $500,000 per person. Well, you know, party crashing is free. A lot of us don't have $500,000. And so the rich people get access to these politicians and they can discuss issues and they can lobby for what it means something to them. But ordinary people have no access. Party crashing gives you that access. And it's not even a misdemeanor here. It's called an infraction. It's like a parking ticket. If you were to get caught or arrested, the worst they could do is fine you 75 bucks. That's it. $500,000 versus 75 bucks. It's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> I, I don't want you to give away your secrets, but <laughs> what is your tips? Give us, give us two top tips for, for party crashing. I, I heard you say there that you could interview, you know, 10 to 15 people all in the one evening. My ears are pricking up here. What should, <laughs> what should well, I, be I mean, doing? 
there are lots of different techniques, but one technique is you could actually dress like a celebrity yourself and try to pretend like you are part of the entertainment, for example. So you could wear like, uh, you know, I did this at the Grammys one time. I wore this really outlandish like sequins and feathers and this really crazy outfit. And I actually hitched a ride in a limo. There was a long line of limos taking all the celebrities to the door. I basically hitchhiked. Somebody gave me a ride. I got out by myself because for some reason the guy in the limo didn't want to get out. I have no idea why. And I walked down the red carpet by myself and everybody is like thinking I'm some big shot and taking pictures of me. And, oh, who's that? And I'm like waving to my fans, of course. Ha ha. And I get to the door and the guard asked me for my ticket. And I said, oh, my agent has it. Oh, no. What should I do? And of course, he doesn't want to send me back down the red carpet into the street, you know. So he let me stay there and I talked to him and eventually. He basically let me go into the event. So I kind of just chatted him up a bit. So that's one example. Another example is you can kind of jump next to a well-known person and pretend to be part of their entourage. So when Frank Sinatra was having a party in Washington, D.C. years ago, I wanted to go. And there was this escalator that went up towards the guards who were in the distance. And I saw uh, country singer Charlie Pride and his wife get on this escalator and start going up towards the guards. So I just jumped next to him, but I couldn't think of anything to say as crazy as that is. So I just pretended to talk. I, I, he probably thought I was a loony, but the reason I did that is because the guards in the distance could see us and I wanted to seem like I was with him. So I was like, you know, laughing and talking. And he's like staring at me like I'm crazy. We get up to the top next to the guards and the guards are all smiling like, oh, she's with him, right? He gives his name to the lady at the desk. I walk right in with him and his wife. So that's another technique. There are lots and lots of ways to get into these events. This sounds <laughs> glitz and glamour. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen it. I, I recently watched a video online and it was uh, two, two guys from Liverpool trying to get into Glastonbury Festival, one of the biggest <laughs> music festivals in the UK. Uh, they just put overalls on and pretended to be security and walked straight in, but... Exactly. That's another way you can do it. You can pretend to work there. You can show up and say you're applying for a job and they'll sometimes let you in and go to an office. There's a lot of different techniques. Yeah. Have you ever been caught and chucked out? I've never been. I, I was caught once. At, there was a private party that Sylvester Stallone and John Travolta were having, and it was at a like a, a, at a commercial venue. And the only reason I was caught is because I got in so early. And one thing you know is you never want to get in too early because you're like a red flag. It's like, what are you doing in here? Nobody's in here yet. So I got kicked out. I waited a little while. I got in again through a different door. And again, it was too early. And I was kicked out the second time. Because they said, you know, you can't come in yet. They didn't say you have to go home. They just said you're not allowed in yet, right? So I waited until it was started. And then finally, I found a third door. And it was really the last door. So that was kind of like my last shot. And then I got in and I was able to stay in. So I've never been kicked out per se, but I was kicked out of that event twice. <laughs> you have to be fashionably late. That's it. Do not turn up early. <laughs> you don't actually have to be um, anything, really. You don't have to be attractive. I knew a guy, he was like 300 pounds. He was very poor. All he had was a purple velvet tuxedo, which he wore all the time. And he was afraid of water, which is really weird to me. So he actually only showered like, you know, every two months. I mean, he smelled horrible. He got into every event. He knew every celebrity. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I thought if he can do it, anybody can do it. That's for sure. What's the... If you had to pick one of your favorite interactions from crashing a party, some of the names that you're mentioning there are top A-list celebrities. 
who who is the one person that you've met that you thought you'd never meet or someone that you've met that you know you thought was super humble super nice or or maybe the opposite well, my my first boyfriend was singer tom jones and he's the only entertainer i was ever interested in but i was interested in him from age nine up until i met him when i was almost or went out with him when i was almost 19 i dated him for three years and i was totally in love with him and he's the sweetest most down-to-earth guy I know he's uh, he's very popular over in, in your area on a regular show. And he's a really very sweet down to earth man and got a great sense of humor. And he's not prejudiced. He doesn't even believe in talking behind people's backs. If people come in and they're trying to gossip, they'll say no. He'll tell people to stop. It's very admirable. He's a very sweet man. It's funny that you say that because I'm, I'm sure if my mom listens to this back, she'll be very jealous that person I'm speaking to who used to go out with Tom Jones. <laughs> and you you met through crashing a party? Well, I pursued him, to be perfectly honest. That story is actually in my first memoir has the entire story of um, and I had to, and one of the main reasons I did start crashing parties and events was to get to Tom. And so he was kind of one of the first, you know, things I did. And, you know, I had low self-esteem as a kid. So when I met him and he asked me out, I was like, I mean, my self-esteem just went way up really fast because yeah. I thought I was really ugly and there was nothing desirable and really stupid. And, you know, I just didn't have a very good view of myself prior to that. So he really actually made me feel more confident in myself. But, yeah, I went through various maneuvers to get to him, you know, so it was, you know, I had to get through security. I had to and I did outlandish stuff. For example, I'll just tell you one crazy thing I did. I had this showgirl costume made in Atlanta, which is where I lived. And then I went to Las Vegas and I spent a week trying to get a date with Tom, you know, before this all happened. And I gave the bellhop 20 bucks. I walked in the hotel. I said, I said, I need to know what room Tom Jones is staying in, what time he goes to the show, show down to the dressing room and what path he takes. And this guy told me, right? So I waited like at the time that he was supposed to be going down the hall in my showgirl outfit. And I don't look like a showgirl. I'm only four foot 11. So I'm very <laughs> short. Right. Yeah. And so I just casually start walking down the hall and then he comes upon me with his security guard. And then he starts flirting, flirting with me and talking to me. And that was one of our interactions before I actually started going out with him. So That's I can tell he was he was interested. I mean, I could tell he was interested in me before, you know, the first time I met him and the various times we had interaction. So That's, <laughs> That's a fantastic story. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> you mentioned there and you mentioned earlier in our conversation as well, you know, that you were brought up in Atlanta uh, in, mm -hmm. in Georgia. Now you're, you're living in LA and you mentioned, you know, you were from a racist family and maybe not the best upbringing and you are now a mother, you know, you're now living in LA. Did that help shape you as a parent? You know, the, the way that you were brought up when you then had your daughter Kayla, was that a, did you hark back to your own childhood and think, you know, I don't want to be a parent like that or? Well, you know, I was adopted. And so I never really was anything like my family. And I think I felt very dis, I did feel very disconnected from them and very disconnected from the elite Atlanta community. I was a debutante. It was a very old money, very snobby, you know, new money people, entertainment people are inferior. That was kind of the view, you know, and I just never subscribed to that. So because I felt very disconnected from that family and I didn't love my mom or dad, I didn't 
have really any feelings at all. So I always wanted to meet my birth family and I tracked them down. I had to use private eye tools. You know, I had to get into PI mode to track them down because the records were closed in Georgia and they're still closed in that state. So I was able to meet my mom, my dad, my brother, and my sister, who I only met like five or six years ago. They didn't even know they had a sister. And I'm a lot like my birth family. So I believe very strongly that heredity is much stronger than environment. And even Steven Pinker, who's an expert in this area, says that it's it's like 70% genetics and only 30% environment. So yeah, I don't know if it really shaped me because I was just nothing like them. And I sort of feel like my personality has been the same since I was young. And even though I had this low self-esteem, I look back on my life when I was writing my memoir and I was so feisty and I didn't care what other people thought. And it's kind of weird because it didn't mesh with how I felt inside, you know, feeling insecure and yet being like, you know, kind of giving my finger to society and doing what I wanted and not caring what other people thought. And so I was kind of a rebel at a very young age and stayed that way. It's it's interesting that you say that because I think you, you often hear so often that you know, people are victims of their environment or their product of their environment. But I suppose there's so much to be said about, you know, those bloodlines and the, the family that you, you actually come from as well. Oh, yeah. And they've even done studies that say that you make literally scientific studies show that you make, quote, moral decisions before you're even conscious of them. So in other words, it's it's really very strongly genetics. Your Your value system is Uh, you're predisposed towards a certain value system based on your genetics. And, you know, they've even done twin studies with twins that were separated and then they come back and they have like the same belief system and the same habits. And, you know, there are a lot of things. It's not just eye color and hair color. It's like values, religion, all sorts of beliefs. So, yeah, I think it's very powerful. Let's talk a bit about your family then, because, you know, as I touched on the the reason I became aware of yourself, Charlotte, uh, it's through the documentary on Netflix, Most Hated Man on the Internet. For most people watching this in, in Scotland uh, or elsewhere across the world, I would imagine that that's how they have became aware of yourself as well. For, for those that haven't, tell us a bit about this documentary uh, in your own words. You know, why did you agree to do it? What's the background story to it? And uh, I suppose more than anything, what's, what's happened to you since it, since it aired? Because it seems that, you know, you're... Inbox has been blowing up. You've been doing interviews all over the world. <laughs> it's been nonstop by the looks of it. Yeah, it's been really amazing. Uh, the sweet messages I'm getting. I mean, I've gotten thousands of emails and messages. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it. It's very hard. And I'm getting messages from people all over the world. And everything is so positive. And um, I'm just trying to like read it. I can't even respond. I just have to try to read everything. But yeah, it happened. Um, my daughter had taken a topless picture in the mirror along with over a hundred clothed pictures and she never had any intention of sending it to anyone and her cell phone got full. So she sent it to her email. Um, After that, her email was hacked. And then after that, her topless picture was uploaded to the most notorious revenge porn website, which was called is anyone up.com along with her name, her city and her social media link. And she was just completely devastated. It was, you know, the site was not about pornography. It was about ruining lives. The website owner called it pure evil. 
He called himself a professional life ruiner. They all used Charles Manson-like language. He was the father. They were the children. Um, they People would say, I will kill for you, father. I will do whatever you ask. And he was always getting his followers to do really horrible things. They make demeaning comments to women. There was a lot of misogyny and, um, you know, calling people fat pigs and saying, you know, someone called Greenpeace and get her back in the water. There were older people. There were very heavy people. There was a blind paraplegic. Um, at one point, they wanted to post somebody out of a, 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 a nude person who was a corpse, you know, a dead woman. I mean, it was really, really disgusting. And my daughter was so upset and didn't want anyone to know. And she called me and that was my introduction to revenge porn. I didn't know anything about it before that. And I knew that that picture had to come down immediately because, you know, a picture will spread in cyberspace. It's not going to go away if it's a topless picture. And she also found out that one of her friends was posted on the site. And um, we talked to her friend and her friend had also been hacked. And so here I was with this one website and the media is all saying it's revenge porn is about disgruntled exes. But I'm saying, well, I only know two people on the site and they were both hacked. So maybe there's a hacking scheme. So I started my own little survey and I contacted 40 people from that site um, who had been posted within a two week period that my daughter was posted. And I found out 40% of them had been hacked. And I started compiling this information. In the meantime, I was reaching out to law enforcement. I had already tried to get the website owner to remove her photo, which he refused. I had taken lots of avenues. I'd called his attorney and his publicist and some of his advertisers. I even tried to call his mom. You know, I was doing everything I could to try to get the picture down. And um, he was refusing. And, um, and finally, the FBI came to my house and got them to take the case, luckily, and gave them my 12-inch file of data, including information for hacked victims all over the country. And luckily, they took the case and opened an investigation on it. And that's how it started. And um, There's so much in that, Charlotte, that, you know, I'd never heard of Hunter Moore before the documentary. I'd never heard of anyoneup.com. But just to put this into perspective for people that are, are watching or listening, this website was huge. You know, in, in the States, oh, it was yeah. massive. And the, the traffic coming through this website meant that the owner of the website was able to profit and make a living through selling ad space, through, you know, that people mm -hmm. clicking onto that site. He was specifically profiting out of hacking women's photos and also, as you said, you know, revenge porn where ex-boyfriends would upload photos of their previous girlfriends uh, nude. It's, it's mm -hmm. outrageous, you know, and it, it must have taken a lot both out of yourself and your daughter when you first seen this, but you channeled your anger in a positive way. You know, you wanted to make change. Mm -hmm. What I found really interesting about it is Kayla, your daughter, when her photo eventually got, in take, eventually got taken down, she wanted it to stop there. She said, mum, just leave it. I've had enough of it. But you were determined to keep going and make sure mm -hmm. that you fought for every other woman that was on there. Mm -hmm. Why yeah. was that? 
Well, I mean, obviously there are all these other people. I mean, I've always been a cause oriented person since I was a kid. So, you know, I'm certainly not just going to just because my daughter's picture is down. I'm not going to just desert all these other people and just say too bad, fend for yourselves. I mean, I'm obviously had to keep fighting for the cause. Plus, I knew that it wasn't even just about getting their pictures down and getting the website down. I was, you know, stunned that there were no anti-revenge porn laws in the United States. So my view was I've got to start working towards legislation as well you know, after I get this website down. So it was kind of like, you know, multi-tiered mission here. And I, I knew I had a lot of work to do after my daughter's picture came down. And it was difficult because Hunter Moore had these really rabid followers who came after me. So I got death threats. I got computer viruses. I even had a stalker at my house, which wasn't depicted in the documentary, but we had a stalker here. So, you know, a lot of craziness was happening. I got locks from my gates. We put rods under the beds because we were scared someone could come in. It was, you know, you don't know who these anonymous people are. You don't know if they're ex-cons, if they have guns, if they have anger issues. You have no idea who they are. So it's a little bit scary. You mentioned, you know, Hunter Moore had a, a Manson-like following and, you know, they called him father. And you, you almost took the words out of my mouth there. If I was in your position, I would be very worried for my safety. Uh, I'd be stressed. And I think for many people, that would put them off pursuing, you know, this case of I have to keep going. Many people would think, right, the photo's down, I'm out, that's it. Lots of women came forward to you, Charlotte. What happened there? What happened off the back of that? Because how did they find out who you were? Uh, how did people know to come forward to you? Why, why were you the focal point of, you know, this woman is single-handedly going to bring down the most hated man on the internet? <laughs> Well, I mean, I had to eventually go public. I was trying to hide my identity for a really long time. So the first time that I said anything about the hacking, it was on an anonymous blog. And it was crazy because like 30 minutes after I posted the information, it was it was hacked and a virus was put on the blog. So I was like, that kind of freaked me out. Eventually I went, I had to go public. I had to be the face of this because the victims didn't want to come forward. They, it's very hard for these victims to fight for themselves. They just feel like curling up in a ball and shutting off the world and getting off social media. And they just can't do it themselves in most cases. And so I kind of had to be that person. And so the first time I confronted him was on Dr. Drew show. And that's when I confronted him with the hacking which he denied. And I continued to, you know, mention the hacking in the media and there was no one else to talk in the media. In fact, Hunter was getting, he was being glorified in the media. He had the headlines, he had the big photo, the media, the press were, you know, thinking he was cool and what an, a neat business model he has and what a cool guy. I mean, that was the view back then. It was victim blaming, you know, it was all the victim's fault for taking the picture in the first place. Everybody pretty much thought that, you know, from politicians to media, to law enforcement, to regular people in society. So it was an uphill battle trying to get society to, you know, have a different perspective. And it has changed because of the Me Too movement. So now there's a very different view about victims and people realize that people should have a right to take pictures of themselves and other people shouldn't have a right to just distribute them without consent. I think society has changed and the, the outlook has changed on it. I, I remember watching the documentary and like you touched on there, that the language was very much, these women shouldn't have taken the photographs in the first place. What did they think was going to happen with it? And it's just outrageous, isn't it? It's just not acceptable. I, I think as well, you know, something that, that I feel very strongly about is the fact that 
this platform was there and you touched on it. There is no laws to hold these people to account. I think that the only, is, is that changed, Charlotte? Am I right in saying that the, the only place in the US at present where there is or isn't a law is South Carolina in terms of revenge? No, plan? no, no. The, the, uh, yeah, the only one that doesn't, there are state laws now. We have laws in 49 states yeah. and the only state that doesn't have it is South Carolina, but we don't have a federal law and the laws are very weak in pretty much all the states. So, and Arizona's law was just kind of overturned by a court maybe a week ago. So they're saying you can't prosecute any more revenge porn cases because they think the law is not written properly or something. So it's not consistent from state to state. If a victim's in one state and a perp is in another state, you don't even know which law would apply. And um, it's kind of like a slap on the wrist. It's like, you know, a $500 fine or, you know, the most they could get is maybe six months in prison. It's not anything that's serious. So we need to have a federal law, but we've had a lot of trouble getting something passed, uh, primarily because of the ACLU. That's been the main um, antagonist to this um, effort. And then Charlotte, the ACLU, what's what's the ACLU? American Civil Liberties Union, and they just basically are saying it's free speech and people should be able to distribute revenge porn because it's free speech. That's their argument. And, you know, and I'm a big supporter of free speech, but I'm not a supporter of revenge porn. I think it should actually be an exception to the First Amendment, just like child pornography or incitement or all the others. So that's my my opinion. So, um, you know, and then we also have certain individuals who are um, part of Um, the progressive side of the Democratic Party now who have the defund the police mindset and they are against it because they don't want additional laws that put people in jail because they're trying to get people out of prison and not put people in prison. So that's a new opponent that we also have for federal law. On the the subject of Hunter Moore, who ran this website and, and was behind all this, he got put in prison. You know, if people haven't watched the documentary, Hunter got put in prison, but that wasn't because there was a law against revenge porn. Correct me if I'm wrong, Charlotte, but that was because ultimately he had hacked into these girls' phones or their emails. Uh, it was a different law altogether. And, you know, if, if it was just a revenge porn website, he could have kept doing that forever. Yeah, I mean, he he was doing something against the law, but the problem is no one was willing to take it up. And that was for um, copyright violation. But copyright violation is normally a civil case. It's not a criminal case. So whenever you take a picture of yourself, you own the copyright. And so no one else is supposed to be able to use that. But normally it's a civil case and you take them to court and you can get up to $250,000 per photo. But of course, Hunter Moore had no money and no fear of civil suits because he had no money. So that law didn't really help victims at the time like it could have. And so you're right. He he had to be he was arrested for hacking, luckily, and for identity theft, which was related to the hacking. And um, he did go to prison. Unfortunately, it was a very short prison term. I think on another side of this as well, as we've not quite touched on yet, is is the emotional impact that this has on on the women that are affected by it. And, you know, you, you spoke to your daughter firsthand, but then you spoke to many women further down the line. What's the what's the messages or the, the feeling that you get from them? Because first of all, you says, you know, that they want their photos down. But I would imagine as well, to a certain extent, there's also an embarrassment to tell your friends, your family, you know, that, that mm. your photo's on there in the first place and you have been a victim of this. Yeah, I mean, they were very embarrassed. They didn't want to tell anyone. They felt violated and humiliated and and literally just freaked out. And when I would call these these victims, I would say about 50% of the time, I was the first person to tell them they were on the site. 
So I was like, I felt like a suicide hotline. I was literally, they were in tears. They were, you know, they didn't have anyone else to talk to but me. So it was good that I was there and I had a little bit of experience with the issue because they didn't want to tell their family or their friends. And yet they needed to be able to talk to someone about it. And they needed to have somebody who could potentially help them get the content removed. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, heartbreaking talking to these victims. I think that's the, that's the worst bit as well, is, is they're often finding out secondhand from not just yourself, but I'm sure in the documentary there was someone said, you know, my, my brother seen my photos online because one of his friends says, listen, you have to check this out. Your sister's on this website. What's going on? I mean, that right. is not, nobody wants to find out in that way. Never mind. Don't want to find it at all, but through your, through your family member, through your brother. Right. Emotion, yeah, I know. Again. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's terrific. And, you know, I can just, even though it hasn't happened to me, I mean, it happened to my daughter, but I can kind of, I can really empathize with how these victims feel. And, I, you know, I just think it's, you know, it's just horrible. And, you know, there are some victims who actually, like, for example, there are two girls who killed themselves over revenge porn. One is, was named Audrey Pott. The other was Retta Parsons. One was from Northern California. The other was from Canada. They had not had pictures on this particular website, but they had both been sexually assaulted and, you know, raped by multiple men. And these are two separate cases. And they, it was horrible being raped. I mean, it was terrible, but they were going to live through it. They were going on with their life until the nude pictures uh, surfaced. And when the nude pictures surfaced and were distributed, both of them killed themselves. And when I spoke to their parents, both sets of parents said revenge porn for my daughter was worse than rape because that's how it was. They killed themselves over that revenge porn. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Charlotte, is, is, there any, is there any support networks there for people who have been victims of revenge porn? Is- yeah, there's, um, there's an organization called the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. And they have a hotline, so you can talk to people. Um, I believe in the UK, you also have some kind of a helpline, so there's something there. And um, and then they also have a lot of information on their website. And then there's also an organization called the Cyber Civil Rights Legal Project, and you can do a search on Google. And they have attorneys, both in the United States and in the UK, who can help victims pro bono. So if you want to bring a case and fight a legal case, you might want to give them a call. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. I'll make sure we, we pop the links in the description as well so if anyone wants to check that out. Charlotte, just on the Netflix documentary, was there ever any doubts in your mind about doing this? Was there any doubts in Kayla's mind about you doing it? Or was the driving force behind this, if we can help other people out there who've been victim to this, let's raise awareness about it. Let's raise awareness about how much of a bastard Hunter Moore is, you know, because <laughs> that guy's now out of prison. Let's not let him get back to the status where he, he was seen as a legend by so many people as well. Yeah, I mean, there was never hesitation on my part, and I definitely saw it as a way to raise awareness and also to push for a federal law. But my daughter did not feel that way. She had mixed feelings, and she understood the importance of getting the message across. But at the same time, she never wanted to be associated with the issue because she felt it was going to hurt her business. And she is a successful real estate agent now, and she fears that clients will see that she had a topless picture online or read about it and then not want to work with her. So she's always had mixed feelings, and she almost wasn't even in the documentary. She had been saying no literally for like 10 years because we had lots of production companies contact us. And the very last day of filming on this documentary with Raw TV, 
she said, oh, okay, I'll do a half day of filming. And they used a lot of that interview, which I think it added a lot of depth and a lot of texture to the story. So I think it's it's really great that she did it. I think it added to the documentary. And now she's kind of feeling, and then after she did the interview, she said, I hope it never gets released. Yeah. So she went back to that again, but now she's kind of starting to lean into it more. And um, we even did like a little um, Instagram live thing together like a week ago. So she's kind of feeling a little more comfortable with it and, you know, about talking about it publicly. What, what's the next steps for yourself, Charlotte? What, what's coming up next? What have we to look out for? Or, you know, what should we be, what should we be aware of that, that you've got in the pipeline? Well, I'm, I'm just working on a book. I'm actually doing a lot of animal advocacy work. And um, so I'm working on an animal advocacy book and it's, um, it's a pretty academic book. So it's going from talking about, it's called Omniocracy. And it talks about how we should move from a democracy to an omniocracy, which I, I describe as a government with representation for all living beings, that we should extend our concern to others and not just humans who are the elite of by and for people. You know, we need to extend that. So I'm working on that. I also finished a um, anti-animal cruelty script, but it's very mainstream. And um, so I'm just about to start sending that out. And so, and I'm still talking to victims and obviously doing a lot of press and reading all these emails and messages that are coming from all these people around the world, which is very sweet. And so those are kind of what I've been doing lately. And if there's anyone who wants to to reach out to you, where's the, where's the best place to get you? On Twitter, I would say. So go to at Charlotte Laws on Twitter is the best place. Brilliant. Charlotte, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to share your story and, and for speaking to us and and thanks for doing the documentary and, and making us aware of your work as well. Okay, well, thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of the DW Podcast, please like and subscribe. Go back and check out some previous episodes as well. Thanks very much. Uh-huh.